Good evening, everybody. Um, sorry about the slight delay. Um, thanks very much for coming tonight. Uh, my name's Charlie Beckett. I run uh, Polis, which is the media think tank here at the London School of Economics, based in the uh, Media and Communications Department. Um, we're very pleased to um, welcome our panel tonight. Um, for Peter and Jeremy, it's a return gig, as it were. We were pleased to have Jeremy last year, for example, and Peter spoke last year. So it's very much a continuing uh, series, really, for Polis, looking at, um, to start with, looking at um, broadcasting and journalism, but increasingly our work has been trying to set it in a much broader context, as befits, if you like, the Media and Communications Department, that we're trying to see it as part of uh, the overall development of policy around uh, media uh, and communications and, of course, digital Britain. And by that, we are referring, of course, to uh, the report by uh, Lord Carter, but to be honest, we're looking to the future because I'm sure Jeremy isn't the only person tonight who's thinking about 2010 and what might happen uh, after that year. Um, so we're very much thinking about not just the, 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 the pipes and the poetry, the infrastructure, but the purpose of it as well. And that's very much uh, the key uh, element, if you like, of the POLIS approach, is that we're trying to bring together the ac academic research uh, quality that we have here at the LSE, but always trying to engage with practitioners and the public. So tonight, by having uh, policy makers, if you like, politicians, analysts, uh, and media practitioners, I think we've managed to get that chemistry right. But we're very much also very glad to see so many people here tonight who are also very much active, uh, if you like, in this series of industries that we're talking about, and we look forward to engaging with you in the future as we go forward with the events and the research that we're doing at Polis. So there's a very much an open invitation to uh, continue the dialogue, continue the engagement with us, and also an invitation, I should say, to a reception afterwards, which is directly outside in the atrium to the left. But I'm going to hand over now to my colleague, Professor Robin Mansell, who will be looking after us for tonight. Thanks very much. Mobile's off, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Um, good evening to everyone. Uh, it's my privilege to chair this uh, session. Um, welcome to Jeremy, especially, and to our other panelists. Um, my field is uh, new and old media, and um, I was reflecting on why we're gathered here to get today. And it, it, it strikes me really that the big question is how building on digital Britain and however that um, changes in the future, can Britain really develop the creative industries around the internet and other kinds of technologies to become world leading, if not European leading? And it seems to me that really, for me, is the core of the issue. Do we emphasize the supply side or do we emphasize the demand side? Do we emphasize the big producers? or the little producers of content. Um, but you don't really want to hear all of this from me. I'd like to um, stop now and invite Jeremy to take the floor. Um, I'm very interested to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Robin. Well, um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, it is interesting, if you look back on the last year, just how much the whole debate about um, what we need to have a modern digital economy, how that debate has moved on so dramatically. And I think actually in a very positive way, because I think we have come to understand that we need to move much further, much faster than we're currently doing. I, um, the reason I was a little bit late was because I was in 
a shadow cabinet meeting where we were being briefed on the Queen's speech that we're going to be hearing tomorrow. And uh, I don't think I'm allowed to say what uh, the contents of the Queen's speech are. Oh, go on. Um, um, but um, let me just say uh, the sort of things that I will be saying if we find that there is a digital economy bill in tomorrow's yes, Queen's speech. Um, and. Uh, but obviously we'll have to see whether there is a need to use these words or not um, when we hear Her Majesty uh, say those uh, all-important words. Um, I think there are three really key areas that need to be addressed in um, our approach to the digital economy. Um, and I fear, on, on the basis of the leaks that we've had, that um, we are not going to see those properly addressed in uh, what we get in a digital economy bill if and when it's published. I think the three key areas are, first of all, uh, creating a modern digital infrastructure. We have a lot of debate in the um, digital industries as to whether we should be relying on the market to develop the digital infrastructure we need or whether we need um, more specific interventions by government. And I think the conclusion that we have come to is that the market has delivered extremely well with respect to the needs of the current generation of broadband users. If you look at the current broadband network, uh, the market has got, uh, has delivered faster and cheaper broadband in a way that was exactly what the people who designed the current uh, deregulated infrastructure that Ofcom operates intended. And I think it's been very successful. We have some of the cheapest broadband in the world. It's not particularly fast by international standards. Uh, it's kind of in the middle of the pack. But where the current regulatory structure has failed to deliver is serious substantive investment in the next generation broadband networks. And by the next generation, I'm talking about broadband, which is capable of delivering uh, speeds of up to 100 meg per second, unlimited video. Um, and these are things that you could say, well, actually, uh, there's no demand for them from consumers. And uh, so the question you have to ask is, if we sit back and do nothing, is the market going to deliver this? And I don't believe it is, because the market delivers for what uh, services it can predict that consumers want. And therefore, businesses like BT and Sky are prepared to make an investment on the basis of what they know consumers are prepared to do. But um, if you're talking about the next generation of services, um, it's very hard to predict what they are. Um, I'll give you one example. Before we had broadband, no one predicted that Tesco was going to revolutionize the grocery business with Tesco Online. But it has done that, and that's made a massive, massive change in the whole structure of the way groceries are bought in this country. I think it's about 15% market share of online grocery provision. And we need to accept that we can't predict this next generation of businesses, but unless we have this platform, this infrastructure in place, uh, we will never know. And I'm very concerned for the UK that if you look at Japan, Korea, France, the United States, they are all laying fibre to people's homes, which allow this much, much faster speed of broadband connection. And we have barely started. And the specific policy proposal that I think we should be discussing is whether BT should be forced to open up its ducts so that other providers could lay fiber optic cable in BT's ducts. Uh, this is something that 
they've done in France. It's a slightly different situation, but they have done this in France. And it has stimulated a massive amount of investment, both by France Telecom and by its competitor ISPs. And I think uh, doing something along those lines would have uh, a potentially very far-reaching effect in stimulating investment in our next generation networks. So that's issue number one, um, and I don't think we'll see very much on that in the Digital Economy Bill. Issue number two um, is to do with piracy. Now, I recognize that piracy is a very, very serious problem for the music industry, uh, the film industry, and the publishing industry. Um, the long-term solution to this is to create more uh, models that allow people to download legally like Spotify has done so successfully in the music industry. And in fact, we're seeing a decline in piracy in the music industry as a result of that. Um, what I think we're going to he hear from the government is some pretty tame measures to uh, constrict or suspend people's internet access after repeated warnings with lengthy appeal processes in place, um, with the first possible suspension not happening if the bill becomes law in the spring not actually happening until February 2012. Um, I think these are going to be pretty ineffective measures. I don't think they're wrong. I think the law has a role to play. If you're going to have a functioning marketplace, the law has to be involved somewhere. But I think the real change that needs to happen is to have a modernized structure for intellectual property in the digital space. Because there are all sorts of things that are illegal now, which shouldn't be illegal, like simply downloading from iTunes onto your iPod is actually illegal right now. Um, nearly everyone does it. Um, but, um, you know, things like digital mashups, someone uh, taking a video of their cat and giving it a, you know, a backdrop of a Be Beatles song, that would technically be a breach of intellectual property. Someone taking a clip from The Wire and using it in a, a birthday video or something like that, that would also be a breach of intellectual property. And rights holders are clear when they say, actually, they don't want to penalise that kind of usage on the web. That's part of what the web is all about. And I think part of the solution to dealing with illegal piracy is actually uh, being much more open and upfront about what is allowed and what should be allowed. And a modern intellectual property framework is a very important part of that. Again, I don't think we're going to hear anything about that. Um, the final part of the Digital Economy Bill, um, which I think is going to be disappointing is the government's strategy to prop up regional news on the ITV network. ITV said it doesn't want to do this anymore and the government is effectively planning to use the license fee to pay for um, independent consortiums in the regions to supply the service instead. I think this is totally the wrong approach. Local media is absolutely vital but the reason that regional news has failed is because it's a failed model. What people actually want is not regional news, they want local news. It is absolutely crazy that, um, to use an example that I, I've used before, Birmingham, Alabama has eight local TV stations, whereas our Birmingham, which is four times the size, has none. And I think what we need to do is to have a revolution in local media. We need to recognize that the old definitions of what monopolies are in local media don't apply um, in the digital age. We need to be much more light touch and flexible about this and allow a new uh, generation of businesses with totally new business models to emerge. And, and that's the long-term way of doing it, not propping up an old model that's failed with license fee cash. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Well, I think uh, if only it was so easy to change legislation and rebalance the way things are done, um, it would be a, a wonderful world. Um, I think we turn next to uh, Peter for sure. your comment. Thanks. Well, if I go very quickly through your agenda, Jeremy, and then I'm going to add a few hate me worths of my own. Um, <clears throat> very glad to hear what you said about creating a digital infrastructure. I think there's been quite a debate with the current government between universality on the one hand and speed on the other. And I think the current government really thinks more about universality than speed. And it sounds as though you're thinking more about speed than universality. And I would say with the British economy in the state it is and the ambitions we have for the digital economy, that's the right way around. It isn't to say that universality doesn't matter. But if you're talking priorities, I'd say speed and economic stimulus should be the priority of the next government, whoever it is. So I was pleased to hear you say that. Um, on um, piracy, I'm not going to get into that whole argument, and there are some other people in the audience who, will, like Jeremy Silver there, who will raise the various issues, I'm sure, when we come to questions. One thing I would say is that <coughs> while we try to protect intellectual property in whatever way we see, and, we, and, and you know, Jeremy, and I know, it's very, very fraught finding the right way through how you protect IP. It's very, very important that we make sure industries continue to modernize and find new models and create, and we don't let them use it as a protectionism. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, one of the ways I sort of imagine copyright in the future is that one of the, your, your rights as, a, as, a, as an IP owner might be not that you can control who accesses your IP, but that you have the right to have it reported back to you who accessed it, because the, the value of those eyeballs who's looking at your, is what you can monetize in terms of advertising support. And so there are all sorts of ways of looking at copyright going forward. That, that, will, that, that will, as you say, modernize it. I think we have to be very imaginative and make sure we continue to force industries to come up with new models as well as protecting the old ones. And thirdly, um, uh, you talked about regional news. And uh, it's true that the local newspaper industry is in terrible trouble at the moment. And we do need to do something about local media for reasons of democracy as well as economy. Um, the only thing I would say is we're not the U.S., and I heard you make your U.S. comparison before, Jeremy, but the U.S. media market is massive and can support all sorts of things that we can't support. So the ideas you've been working on, I think, with Roger Parry, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing them expanded more because um, the other thing is hearing those debated with one or two people who'd like to get their hands on the top slice money, people like ITN and STV in Scotland, uh, they favour, they're the old style guys, and they favour top-down solutions, and they're all for cutting up various BBC parcels of money, and saying, oh, yes, well, well, we'll link with a little newspaper there and a little website there. But if it really works, revitalising local news, it's going to be bottom-up. And I think that's really got to be the, the most important issue. Very quickly, if I may, may I? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very concerned, I am personally very concerned, that the public service broadcasters are slightly losing the plot on the amount of money they're putting into content. And content investment, is, uh, the, our investment in original content in Britain is plummeting from 3.4 in 2004 down to 2.8 at the moment and trending down to 2.4 in 2012. That's at 2008 prices. And I think that's a big issue. And I think we need to get the BBC and Channel 4 to commit to putting larger percentage of their revenues into content every year. And I think it's important for the digital economy too because people like YouTube are trying to f prove their model by using professional content, which is what people want to advertise around. So it can be a stimulus to the digital economy as well as, as, well as to the uh, tenets of public service broadcasting. I'd also like to see 
um, uh, politicians accept the wider area of public service content. It isn't just about BBC and Channel 4. It's also about, for instance, the arts and cultural organisations. I myself I should declare an interest. I'm deputy chairman of the English National Opera. It's been amazing in the last two or three years how we've developed our website, how we're creating content now, how we're posting it. We should be linked into iPlayer and that should be helping to distribute our content. And the BBC's archive, its arts archive, should be distributable via ours. So the BBC needs to open up. And, and we need to accept that public service broadcasting is not that anymore. It's public service content, and it's a wider, it's a wider thing. And lastly, I'm very concerned about training. Again, I shall declare an interest. I'm deputy chairman, or I have been for the last seven years at any rate, something called the National Film and Television School. And, you know, we train the rainmakers. We train people like uh, Nick Park of Ardman Animation, or people like David Heyman, the director of the Harry Potter films, people who can make a difference, create real wealth and create companies and exportable IP. And our budgets are going down the drain because industry is finding it difficult to support us, or in some cases is not required to support us any longer as people like ITV drift out of the public service net. Hefke is in a mess because it didn't expect to have the number of applications for student places. And there are some real training issues. And if we want a, a really strong creative economy in uh, the next as it were, 10 years, we need to really make sure we're bringing through the rainmakers who can create those brilliant pieces of IP that we're going to need. Lastly, I'm surprised you didn't mention that the Conservatives are advertising on Spotify, uh, which was a piece of news on Guardian Media I noticed today. Um, brilliant, they've got that, um, that symbol of youth, Eric Pickles, doing an, <laughs> doing, uh, doing an advertisement on debt aimed at students. I'm sure it'll go down very well, but actually very interesting. And it did remind me of a debate I've had with somebody in this audience in the front row in the past, that the whole area of political communication needs reforming. I would personally abolish party political broadcasts. I'd allow political advertising. If you can advertise that way online, why shouldn't you be able to advertise that way on other media? So I think all that needs looking at as well. There, just a simple agenda. There yes. you go. Thank you very much indeed. Would you like a rejoinder at this point, or would you rather turn to Sasha? I'm happy to listen to Sasha. Okay. Thanks. Well, I'm, I think I'm still um, reeling that if the opinion polls are right, we might be shortly to have someone in the cabinet who just casually drops mash up into, into their uh, <laughs> conversation and, and knows what it means. I'm, I'm just going to talk for very briefly from a slightly different perspective, I think, on, on digital Britain, the future, what it means for an industry, in particular, actually talk about the... Um, marketing communication sides of the creative industries, which sometimes get a little bit forgotten in the debate, um, but actually the digital Britain future is incredibly important for those for those sectors as well, and it's the sector that I work in. Um, we've got a reason why we're a big uh, industry in this area. We're a global creative hub for marketing and communication services in London. Um, digital Britain actually references reasons why it thinks that's the case. It talks about geographic centrality, it talks about culture, it talks about the legal uh, system that we have here. It actually also talks about human capital and it talks about technological infrastructure and in a way I think those two are very, very closely linked. Um, and in a way I think they stand on quite a fragile place at the moment. So Jeremy, you mentioned Korea and actually anyone who's, who works in, in marketing communications, particularly with a digital angle, spends quite a lot of time looking at Korea and what it can teach us in terms of consumer behaviour and in terms of economic behaviour. And anyone who's not been there, if you haven't read Tommy Arms' great book on digital Korea, you, re you really, really must. It's absolutely fantastic. And you look at a, a media market which has 50,000 citizen journalists writing in its major newspaper. Um, you look at a media market that has 
in the gaming sector, which is another sector in, in the creative industries which we're enormously strong in in the UK, has eight times as many people using their equivalent of World of Warcraft than we have in in the rest of the globe, using that other global phenomenon, um, has a huge number of people. I think it's something like, again, eight times as many using the Korean equivalent of Second Life as you Second Life in every other media market. Three out of four people have um, 3G on their mobile. Most cars are shipped um, with 3G interactive screens in them. It's, it's a completely different place. And the kind of reason I raise it is not just to, to sort of look on with envy, but actually, I think we potentially stand on the cusp of a movement where the UK has been at the centre of communications, corporate communications and marketing because people working here, that human capital side, can be surrounded by the very latest in consumer thinking and behaviour. And it's been that case. Corporate communications famously, people said, if you can work in the London media market, you can work anywhere. And I think we potentially stand on the cusp of those industries having to look to other markets where we're going to see much more sophisticated consumer behaviour and actually see a bit of a shift where humor, humor capital will move. Some of our weaknesses in relation to language, which Peter actually I think also link in your point about training, language actually flows in, we will suddenly start to see a little bit of a weakness. And we've already seen some communications businesses remove their domicile from the UK for tax reasons but keep their creative hub here. I think we could stand on the cusp of lots of consumer and marketing and communications businesses shifting their main focus to other markets if we don't sort out the infrastructure problem. So it seems that all of us up here on the stage have a little bit of an, a, a shared um, view when it comes to speed and the need to in invest in that infrastructure. Uh, but perhaps I have a, a little bit of a different vested interest in, as to why I think it's important. Okay, thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. Jeremy, is there anything you want to respond to that you've heard so far? Um, well, I think... It's quite interesting. I mean, I think the panel has come at these issues um, with a slightly different perspective, but actually the same fundamental values. Um, I don't think I disagree with a word that either Peter or Sasha said. Um, I'm actually going to Singapore in January, and I'm hoping to go to Korea as well on the same trip, um, because it's very easy to be a bit Anglo-centric when we're talking about the media industries and, and think a lot about what happens in places like the US. Uh, but when it comes to investment in infrastructure, technology infrastructure, uh, there's a huge amount happening in Asia. Um, I think um, Peter made a very, very good point when he, he said, we're not the US here. And I think it's really important that we don't try and invent the US. They have a much more successful um, local media sector than we have here, have had for very many years. In fact, I would say that if you if you talk about British broadcasting um, as being one of the best in the world, which I think it probably is, um, the big gap is probably on local provision and always has been, and the US has always been better, but I don't think we should fall into the trap of trying to invent the US system here, um, because what has happened uh, since the US system was set up uh, is the internet. And so we need to actually factor in the huge changes that technology brings to the party, which is why one of the things I proposed uh, this week, um, in fact, I'm going to be proposing on Thursday when I see Peter for a conference that he's organizing, um, but it's been trailed a bit this week, is something that they haven't done in the US, which is to completely review the cross-media ownership rules with respect to local media, because um, at the moment, 
both in the US and in the UK, if you own a local newspaper, you're not allowed to own the local TV station or the local radio station, except within very, very tight constraints. And the reason for those laws is to prevent the emergence of local monopolies, which is perfectly reasonable. But the argument that I'm going to be making on Thursday is that uh, we have to understand that the media industry has become the technology industry. And the model for regulation in the technology industry is much lighter touch and rightly so, because even when you think you've got a monopoly, actually its foundations are far less secure than in traditional industries, and that's why we've had this transition from the dominance of IBM that everyone worried about, including the US antitrust authorities, but by the time they got to do something, it was actually too late, because Dell had arrived and Microsoft had arrived, and the market had self-corrected. Then they started worrying about Microsoft, but by the time the US antitrust authorities and the European Commission actually got around to doing something about Microsoft, it was too late and it didn't matter anyway because Google had arrived <laughs> and sort of solved the problem for them. And we're not fretting about the dominance of Internet Explorer these days anymore in the way we were five years ago. And so I think the understanding of what a monopoly is is quite different in this age. But conversely, it's very much more important that the regulatory structure doesn't stop new models emerging. And that, I think, is where... Um, we've got a real problem at the moment because most of our regulations were designed for the pre-internet age, not for the age that we're now living in. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, we haven't gathered you all together here tonight for you to sit silently. So while you're thinking of questions, because we do want to go into question-answer mode to all of the panelists, um, I guess there's one um, term I suppose I'd like to throw into the mix, which is the digital citizen. We've talked a lot about the digital consumer in various ways, and it strikes me that um, if we look around the world to different places where Korea is one example, um, the internet and all of the different social networking applications are taking off tremendously. If you listen to somebody who lives there and um, you know, lives their everyday life there, they have all sorts of things to say about how their society works and doesn't work sometimes. And so I think the question has to be, how do we have in Britain the digital economy going along in parallel with the citizens' organization of their life? How do they fit together? And it seems to me, unless we find ways of releasing all that crea creativity that exists in the unorganized part of society, in the not the, the big firms necessarily, or necessarily the structure of the industry, but the way in which it frees up the possibility for citizens to do all the things that citizens in Britain may wish to do, and not necessarily depending on the big organizations. And I think there, there is so much potential. And issues like copyright and getting the balance right, all of these kinds of things are really essential if we want to build not only on the capacity of industry and the BBC, but also on the capacity of ordinary human beings who find creative ways of interacting online and doing things and generating value, ultimately. Um, but whose hand is going to be first? Who has a question? Yes. I think if you wait for the uh, microphone, it's coming. And if you could give your name and um, affiliation, please. Hi, it's uh, Henry Parker from Intellect, the trade body for the technology industry. Um, Jeremy, you mentioned most of the provisions that may or may not be announced tomorrow in, in the Digital Economy Bill. I just wanted to get your view on a couple that you didn't mention, which was the universal service commitment for broadband and also the proposed um, switch over to DAB radio. Um, what 
perhaps would be your view on those two proposals if and when they're announced? Um, I think it's very important uh, that we don't have a digital divide. So I've, I have nothing against uh, a universal service, uh, universal service uh, commitment, and we would support it if it appears in the Digital Economy Bill. Um, but I think that um, from the technology industry point of view, uh, my priority is very much along the lines that Peter says. I, I think that we are much more likely to get universal service if we stimulated massive investment in our um, digital infrastructure by having some of the highest speeds in the world in our major cities. And I think the trouble with starting by saying that the first problem I want to solve is um, access to the internet in, in the remote corners of Wales or the Yorkshire Moors, if you start from that perspective, then you're, you end up trying to solve today's problem and not tomorrow's problem, because the reality is that as new services are transacted over a super-fast digital backbone, then actually it will become profitable for BT and wireless providers and Sky and Virgin and all these other people to connect up people in rural areas, because they'll know that if they do that, they can get 40 quid a month from them. Um, whereas at the moment, um, people aren't willing to pay that for broadband because it won't support enough services to justify that. So um, we're not against it, but I think we have to understand the broader issue of getting world-class investment. Um, DAB radio switchover. Again, I, I think the government's approach has been a bit top-down on this. I mean, I think um, the problem with DAB is that radio manufacturers and the radio industry have been very unimaginative about creating the kind of platform of services on DAB radios that means that everyone feels they have to have them. Um, the quality is a little bit better, but you know, why can't we have DAB radios where if you hear a song you like, you can just press a button and download it legally free? Um, or not free, but you know, paying a small charge, you know, instead of having to go to your iTunes and do it. I mean, there are all sorts of services you could imagine. I just picked that one off the top of my head, but you know, I, I think the transition from cassettes to CDs was a, tr was a transition the market managed. What I'm nervous about is if we say we're going to switch off at the analog spectrum in 2015 and have uh, 9 million analog sets that are suddenly useless, uh, we would shrink radio audiences quite dramatically, I think, if we did that, and potentially cost a lot to the taxpayer. So, I, again, I, I think it's a slightly too top-down approach. Could I just add a line to Digital radios. They're absolutely ghastly, aren't they, really? I mean, they're clunky, they don't bloody well work, they let you down, they keep on knocking out. I, I think it would be an absolute crime for any government to force switch over digital radio unless it got a lot better. I'll go further. I'd even question whether we should, because internet radio is coming on such a pace. So I think there's some big questions, again, against the assumption you want to go further with the, the DAB system. And the last point I was going to make on the other question was Francesco Caio did some very good work for the government about universal broadband. You know, one of the most important things he points out is there are going to be many solutions to this, wireless, satellite, as well as cable. And um, that range of solutions, I entirely agree with Jeremy. We're agreeing far too much tonight, really. But anyway, I entirely agree with Jeremy. Uh, it's best uh, delivered by stimulating that economy across all those technologies. Yes. 
My name is Aksana Vajdaeva. I'm a fellow of the Reuters Institute in Oxford. Uh, and my, my, I have two questions, mostly to Mr. Hahn, but if, if other members of the panel could, um, could answer, I will be happy. The first question is, uh, Mr. Hahn, you uh, mentioned the, uh, that the local uh, model is viable for television. Uh, but the main argument uh, against this and uh, the reason for uh, Labour's IFNC's model is that the uh, advertising market in England uh, used to be national. And there is no real demand for the local advertising on television and any, anyone else, anywhere else. And why do you think it's, is it, is it viable, really viable, without financial intervention from the government? The first question. And the second question is, uh, about uh, LMC's model of conservatives. It seems to be uh, this model could be available only after digital switchover. And uh, what before this? Two or three years without any commercial, regional and local stations in frames of uh, ITV's decision for next year. Thank you. Okay. Um, let me just take those two points. Um, you're absolutely right that um, advertising is sold nationally in the UK at the moment. In fact, if you look at um, local TV companies in the US, it's mostly national there. Um, the difference is that what happens is that you sell advertising to agencies in New York that spread across the whole country, um, but around 30% of the advertising sales are reserved to be sold locally. So you get this balance of national and local. And I believe that we would not, local TV I don't think would be viable here if we were talking about exclusively local advertising markets. You have to find a way of making it possible to um, sell nationally um, for the bulk of your advertising revenue. I think the um, the model where you say um, a purely local TV station is going to be viable um, has been shown not to work if you look in the UK at Channel M in Manchester where we have a, a purely local station it does some great stuff uh, but it's struggling very badly and I, I think the Guardian are, are trying to decide at the moment whether they want to keep it going or not um, what you need to do is to find a way of bringing down the costs of local TV um, and there are lots of ways of doing that um, one of them is to allow local newspaper companies to invest in it so that they can spread the costs of journalism across different platforms. Um, another is to do what they do in the United States where um, a national network provides prime television between 7 and 10 in the evening. So the local affiliate only really has to provide three or four hours of TV a day, early evening news, late evening news and breakfast news. And so then their costs, if they're only producing four hours of news a day, are much, much less than if they're trying to produce 24 hours of news a day. Here in the UK, I think we could also look at how the BBC could reduce the costs of local news provision. They say they're interested in partnership. Well, could we use their studios at subsidised rates, for example, if they're truly interested in partnership? So I think there are ways that you can bring the costs down and, and ones that make it viable. Uh, you talked about LMCs, which are one of the um, possibilities that were proposed by Roger Parry, who's been giving us some advice. Um, I think sort of community-led local TV stations are something we want to allow space for. Um, but um, they aren't going to fill the gap left by um, 
either ITV regional news or the lack of having proper city-based local TV stations as you have in most other countries, not just the US. Um, and I think what we want is you know, news delivered to the standards of Sky News or BBC News 24, but for our major cities. And most other countries manage that, and I think we should be able to do it here as well. Thanks. Yeah, I just just a sort of quick thing to add to what Jeremy said. I, th I think in this particular debate, strangely enough, we, we seem to approach it backwards. We seem to be kind of looking at how councils can enter the media market and then we complain that really they're either biased or actually just a bit sort of piss poor in what they produce when it comes out and it's boring and it's unengaging. And then even when we look at what happens in existing media platforms, we then tend to say, well, maybe we need an absolute grassroots consumer citizen-based new TV channel. Instead, we aren't thinking, how can some of our existing local media channels be used more effectively to become community spaces? Now, there are a lot of people who would like to celebrate their own community activity on online spaces and, indeed, on broadcast spaces, which sometimes is captured in local media at the moment, but I'd say often isn't. Yes, maybe we have too much simply by problems in television and problems in newspapers arriving at the same time. Um, but it still seems that we tend to think of the, the channels differently rather than think of them potentially as a community space, which can also then have, and this bit's important, but also then have professional content that goes alongside citizen content and so, and so adds more to, than just simply citizen-driven TV. Mm. Gentleman there with the blue tie. Uh, I wanted to make the point that uh, in all these discussions, you've really described the stakeholders in the normal way. It's government, business, consumers, customers, <coughs> even citizens. But uh, what you're actually doing is ignoring the real history of all this. If we come to digital infrastructure, it wasn't government or business that built the original digital infrastructure. It was the group that I call the internet community, of whom I won. And in the UK, I built, or helped build, the original internet digital infrastructure in this country. It was built by a group of hackers who engaged uh, via a unique little group called Demon, who connected to Janet, and then proceeded to actually deliver a complete internet network over dial-up modems, over publicly accessible te television, uh, uh, publicly accessible telephone lines all over the country. And that simply modelled the way the original internet was built. Thank and on that front, and all the time, you simply ignore the people who know how to do what you do, what you want done. When you come to the question of IPR, that is a solved problem because the internet community addressed it via Creative Commons with a huge legal effort in America and they are now constantly publishing internationally recognized licenses which enable IPR holders to define exactly what you can and cannot do with their IPR. And everybody is happy to do that. Can you come and, to the question, please? Well, I. I the question is, um, why do you ignore us? Why won't you engage with us? 
Thank you. While, he, while, while Jeremy ponders that one, I'll take the gentleman behind you. Uh, just immediately behind you. Yes, sir. Uh, Mike Kiley, I'm a local, I, I guess I connect my neighbors and I help out some ex-prisoners get connected. Um, the, we use Wi-Fi networks and share, share our, our bandwidth around the neighborhood too, which is, I think, illegal, and, but it gets people connected. My, my plea would be, <laughs> um, is, is this, is we, uh, even our little estimates there, we, we think we're making about four times better use of the radio spectrum than the mobile companies are. And I would plea, I, I would in support the, the duck sharing, just as duck sharing, if you go a pound a meter, I think you'll do well. Um, it, on the same basis, then, rather than, if you're in favor of duck sharing, then you should also be in favor of, uh, rather than auctioning the, the digital dividend spectrum to the highest bidder, you should make some allowance to those of us who believe we can, if you count bids, throughput, etc., that we could make at least 10 times better use of that spectrum than any mobile company and drive the take-up of fast broadband. There's a double winner there insofar as that uh, if one in five households had a little mini base station, which is perfectly doable, I'm doing it, um, you'd get more connectivity and more, you'd, you'd, you'd get a double whammy there, and I, I, I've written a couple of pages on it for you if you're interested, okay? Should we take more? Yeah, we can take more. There's the woman with the blonde hair there. Thank you. Uh, Emma Ascroft uh, from Yahoo. Um, how does the panel feel that the machinery of government should change to lead government uh, policy making on, for online media in the future? Good, thank you. We'll take one more and then we'll go to the panel. Uh, yes. In the blue shirt. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Christian Tonnes and I work with the Media CSR Forum. And my question to you is based on the fact that I'm a foreigner, that you sure seem to live on an island here. Just wondering, you've been speaking about uh, Korea, you've been speaking about the US. Is there any room for collaboration abroad uh, in terms of positioning digital Britain on the map in the future? Thank you. Do you want to go first, Peter? <laughs> no, not really. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of it's way beyond my competence, Jeremy. <laughs> um, well, again, okay, so I just—I I think a lot of this is well beyond mine as well. But let, let me just—I um, <laughs> was hoping to buy a couple of minutes there. To, yeah, uh, yeah, I can see. I'm sorry. Um, I to, uh, well, I could—I could go first in one respect only. Would that give you? Yeah, the, 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 give me that the, a crucial the window, 30, crucial you know, minute, the precious thirty the crucial seconds minute. you need. Um, you mentioned about um, how government can respond to these problems. And, you know, we've heard over the last 10 years the uh, much overused phrase, joined up government, although I'm not sure we've seen it demonstrated. And I think the digital Britain process, though well-intentioned, um, has been an example of that. It's been really quite, it was quite difficult for Stephen Carter to get everybody working together. There were all sorts of different ministerial interests I think the whole process has brought forward the proverbial camel rather than the horse, uh, although indeed uh, it, it, it's yet to be seen whether the camel tomorrow is alive or dead. Um, so we'll see. So I think it really is a challenge. I mean, I don't know the answer, but I do know, I do agree with the question. It is a real problem when, because, I mean, I don't know, Jeremy, how many different ministries, as they're currently designed, they might be redesigned in the future, of course, but as they're currently designed, how many ministries are there? Probably five or six that you have to knock the heads together on to get consensus around the issue. So it's a, it's a real problem you point to. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, for example, cybersecurity is the responsibility of the Home Office. Um, 
technology and telecoms is the Department of Business, broadcasting is the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Um, and if you speak to Stephen Carter, and I have a great deal of respect for him, he will say that it has been an absolute nightmare trying to uh, get everyone to agree on different issues. Um, and his argument is that we need to have a Ministry of Communications, um, which is interestingly what most Asian countries that have got good digital infrastructures have done. I think the difficulty with that is that changing the machinery of government is also not without its costs. It can take a huge amount of time. And some of these things are things that we, we want to try and crack on with. So I'm sort of reserving my view on that. But um, then, shall I just answer some of those points? Um, not actually in the order they were asked, but in terms of collaboration with other countries, um, I mean, I think the whole point about the internet is to be completely open and to recognize that nowhere has a monopoly of good ideas on this. And I think we do need to look at what's happening in other countries and wake up and, and recognize that other countries have moved much faster than we have, whether it's, you know, Scandinavian countries, Canada, the United States, or Asian countries that we've talked about. Um, I think we have a particular sensitivity in this country over broadcasting because we are very proud of our broadcasting history. Most British people are very, very attached to their TV programs and worry that um, any changes that are made might threaten those. And um, we've had a kind of a pretty um, intrusive regulatory system which has allowed uh, that kind of TV to develop, often fantastically good quality TV, and people want to preserve that. And so that's why there is, I think, a nervousness, and that's why I think politicians have to tread carefully to make sure that we keep the best of what we've got in this country, the kind of the BBC quality in the news, for example, that uh, people think is very, very important, and I would subscribe to that. But we do need to be open to what's happening elsewhere. Um, with regard to um, applying Dutch sharing principles to better use of the spectrum, I'd love to see your paper. I can't promise I'll understand it, but, um, but if you're able to email it to me, I'd be really interested to have a look at it. Um, let me just take um, the other two questions, which I thought were both really interesting questions. Um, why ignore the internet community? Um, I hope we don't ignore the internet community. Um, I think the, the really interesting thing that's happened, that you're absolutely right, and you look at um, how Tim Berners-Lee was involved in setting up the internet, he wasn't commissioned by some government to do it. Well, I'm not going to get into debate as to who was responsible for setting up the internet, because that, I think, would get us into a, a wider discussion. The point I'd make about what he did was that he was trying to get to computers to talk to each other at CERN. He wasn't commissioned by some minister or paid by some private company to do this. He was just figuring out how to solve a problem. And I think one of the huge changes that we have to make as a society is to understand that innovation comes from the bottom up. Um, Eric von Hippel, the MIT professor, has this brilliant phrase. He talks about the democratization of innovation. And there's a kind of management cliche for people who goes on, on MBAs, this, this idea that the most successful companies are the companies that listen to their customers. Well, I think that's going to change. I think the most successful companies of the future will be the companies that allow their customers to design their products to go much, much further. And um, reality TV, which Peter knows a great deal about, in a way is a harbinger of that, but it's allowing your customers to be actively involved. Uh, I think the computer games industry is probably the best example of that. Um, 
And I was quite interested to see in the papers at the weekend that the average age of a gamer is 35, um, which is an indication of how popular they've become. Um, so I, I do think what you're saying is very, very important. Um, can I just uh, come to Emma's point about how should the machinery of government change? Um, I mean, apart from the issue of getting different ministries to talk to each other, I think this relates into what Robin was saying about digital citizens, which I think is the really fundamental change. I mean, Westminster has been convulsed by this expenses scandal. But I think the, the challenge we've got is that when we set up a new expenses system, which we're doing, that actually isn't going to solve the much bigger problem for which this was just the tip of the iceberg, which is this sense of disengagement. Because the whole Westminster parliamentary system is set up on the basis that you elect people once every four to five years, pack them off to Westminster, and then they come back four to five years later and say, how did I do? Can I continue or not? I've actually got a constituent in the audience, and I'm um, very much uh, wondering what he's going to decide, because <laughs> um, he works for the BBC. Um, but, um, that system is totally out of date in the internet age. Um, constituents can send me emails uh, n in which they are far more knowledgeable about the issue that they're writing than I or any MP can possibly be because information is so widely available on the internet. The idea of just uh, sending people off to Westminster and letting them get on with it for five years is totally out of touch with what people want in the internet age, which is much greater participation on an ongoing basis. And I think uh, one of the reasons why people are so angry with Westminster is that they feel that we have dragged our feet, we've had our head in the sands when it comes to those changes, and people really want to um, be able to act as that kind of digital involved citizen in a way that the system doesn't allow them to do at the moment. Actually, in a way, what I'd just throw in is a, um, perhaps in addition to, to Emma's question to, to Jeremy, sort of notably absent in um, the discussion about the machinery of government in, in what you were just talking about, Jeremy, was, was the role of the regulator. And some would say that Ofcom did try and transcend some of the, the differences in terms of communications regulations. Others clearly say that it then also strayed too far into perhaps trying to engineer certain elements of content. But... Where is your thinking in relation to the role of the regulator at the moment? Well, I hesitate to um, bash Ofcom just because I think that much of the work they do is mandated by the 2003 Communications Act. They actually have to do a lot of the regulation uh, that they currently do. Um, but I think we have to ask ourselves whether the kind of micro-regulation that Ofcom is required to do is actually appropriate in a digital age where new business models are emerging the whole time and broadcasters need to adapt if they are going to survive. And if we um, hem broadcasters in to one platform, we say, you know, you can only be in TV, you can't be in TV and newspapers, um, then we are, I think, condemning them to a slow death. So I think we do need to move to much lighter touch regulation. Of course we need some regulation. Um, I think British people would be um, very disappointed if we got rid of the limits on the number of advertising minutes every hour. Um, if you had 18 minutes of advertising every hour, which is what they have in America, people would feel that um, the quality of TV had deteriorated markedly. So I think there are definitely some regulations that we should keep. 
Um, but likewise, I think there are lots of others that need review. Could I just make one comment about Ofcom? Uh, there's this idea around that the Conservatives, if they got into government, would make Ofcom a lot smaller. This seems to me completely untrue. If they abolish the BBC Trust, tuck the BBC under Ofcom, that'll make Ofcom actually bigger. And they also intend, so one understands, to put the Royal Mail regulation under Ofcom as well. So the truth is the Tories are going to double the size of Ofcom, not half it. <laughs> I'm so glad you made the point about the advertising minutes because I've been sitting here thinking I really need to say this. You can learn from other countries overseas but do not want to import the American model because I, from my point of view, speaking as a Canadian, American TV is unwatchable <laughs> locally and nationally. It's just dreadful. But a more serious point. I want to make a plug for um, some research we've done here at the LSE because it's relevant to how these citizens and consumers can contribute. One of our students did a, a PhD study on Second Life and they looked at what percentage of those people who are in and around Second Life are actually able to do designing to actually shape and uh, change the Second Life environment that they're working in. And it was only about 15%. And if you look at other gaming situations, other online interact act interactive activities, it's the lead users who can do it now, which makes me want to emphasize again learning and where people learn. And so much of the emphasis, it seems to me, in all of this focuses on formal learning. What kind of formal skills do we teach people? The informal learning, where people actually learn to do it themselves, is so important. And I think I would argue that if they had more opportunities, they would do it. People explore. Um, but I am sort of usurping the prerogative of the chair. Uh, the man with the purple shirt. Uh, I'm Patrick Robinson from Virgin Media Television. Uh, just to follow on from that last um, discussion about Ofcom, one other thing that has been talked about is that Ofcom's <laughs> essentially policy-making role should be removed. And I just want to unpick a little bit about what that might mean. In what areas of policy, as opposed to regulation, do you feel that Ofcom has gone further than you would feel comfortable in future? Do you want to take some other questions? Sure. Uh, others? Hands in the air? Uh, yes. Um, hi, I'm Jeremy Silver. I'm a, a sort of a media advisor, and I'm not going to... <laughs> Take Peter's bait and ask you about file oh, sharing at all. Shame, Jeremy. No, shame. because we've had that. We've had that discussion. So I, I want to ask you a, a broader question, really, which is that uh, one of the things that um, was quite striking about the Digital Britain report that it didn't uh, engage with um, was the debate about net neutrality, which has obsessed the U.S. Uh, for the last two or three years, if, if not more. And it seems to me that your, um, you know, your potential view about that in terms of the extent to which you feel that the, the internet should remain as a level playing field or the extent to which you think that certain telcos could be enabled to do uh, quality of service type uh, functions and charge people different rates and provide different levels of access for different kinds of services uh, would be quite a big indicator in terms of your view about you know, is, it a, is it a top down sort of corporately dominated kind of environment or is it actually an environment that you don't want to encourage with lots of small players who have equal opportunity as well as the, the larger players. So I'm interested to hear your views on that. And the gentleman there. Uh, Nicholas Jones, journalist. If I could ask um, Jeremy and Peter, you, you've just been talking um, a few minutes ago about the impact of Ofcom. Uh, you 
been talking about local and regional media. Uh, could I ask um, how far you feel um, the national newspapers should be allowed to go uh, to develop as audiovisual online broadcasters? And you, you said, Mr. Hunt, that you, you were concerned about defending existing broadcasting standards. Do you feel that if the British newspaper industry reinvented itself as online broadcasters, that that would threaten um, those very standards? Well, I'd certainly pick up on the point about the uh, newspapers. I mean, gosh, Nick, you raise such a huge subject there, don't you? Because, as we know, um, the newspapers are in a terrible position. In fact, if you ask people we have these, you know, breast-beating afternoons at conferences about media and everybody's model. And then you say, what, what would you like to be, a t own a TV channel, a radio station, a magazine or a newspaper? The one thing they don't want to own is a newspaper. That, they are the things most in trouble. If you take The Guardian, you know, poor old Guardian, there, there's Emily Bell running the splendid Guardian online, a great service, and a great addition to democracy and, and coverage stuff, losing an absolute packet, not only losing a packet, but destroying the Guardian's traditional business at the same time. It's a double whammy. Um, but uh, uh, where, um, well, that's what, that's what it's doing. You know, that is what it's doing. And the Guardian group, media group, which is one of our media assets in our democracy and our culture, is, is in very severe trouble, very severe trouble. Um, uh, so, uh, but, uh, but, you know, they are trying to, they have uh, video, they use video all the time now, Nick, and uh, um, in, a, in that sense they're competing, and, and the more the merrier. It's, it's excellent that they are, but the trouble is they don't have a model for monetizing that video. And we know that Rupert Murdoch says that he, he wants to find a model, but uh, none of us quite believe he's going to do so, except at the very top end of the scale, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, they can monetize a certain amount. But even they are not getting revenues from those, those monetized bits uh, that compare with their traditional revenues and their, and their traditional advertising revenue. So I, I'd warmly welcome the video they're already doing and their new services. And I think the more competition there is in that area, the better. I just doubt that they can in any way sustain it. Um, OK, I'll just take those three points. I mean, policy making coming back from Ofcom. Um, I, I think this is uh, something that has happened kind of by default because we've had, in the period that I've been Shadow Culture Secretary, we've had four um, culture secretaries and five business secretaries, but we've had one chief executive of Ofcom. And inevitably, um, policy-making power has moved in his direction because he's been a force for stability, and actually we have a lot of very, very good people working for Ofcom um, who have, and they have much more depth than the pool of people available either at DCMS or the Department of Business. Um, but I think that the role of quangos is to implement policies that ministers who are elected have decided. And I think that it's very important that when we have big decisions like the kind of things we're talking about today, uh, like the future of public service broadcasting, that actually ministers take a lead and are accountable for what they're saying and then uh, regulators regulate and implement if necessary, um, but that you know we have ministers who have the political courage to say this is what I think needs to happen uh, and stick up for it and make the arguments. Um, in terms of net neutrality, um, I think I have a slightly nuanced view about net neutrality. I think that I strongly support it if you're saying that um, ISP should be impartial between small players and big players, if you're saying that um, 
there should be no discrimination, for example, in terms of political views expressed. Um, and you know, but I think, on the other hand, there are some important public policy goals that ISPs should cooperate with. And one of them is that we do need a functioning digital marketplace. And so in the end, there are some things that ISPs are the only people who can help make um, things happen. And you know, when it comes to um, illegal downloading of music, films, books, TV programs, then actually ISPs shouldn't hide behind net neutrality and say this is nothing to do with us. Actually, they have a role to make sure there's a functioning marketplace. That's in everyone's interest to make it happen, including their own interests, because actually the illegal downloading takes up huge amounts of their bandwidth. Um, so I think net neutrality as a principle is a very good one, but I don't think you should hide behind it um, when there are areas where clearly ISPs are the only people who can help solve a problem that everyone suffers from. Next point about national papers. They are in serious problems, in serious trouble. Um, they too need to develop new models. I suspect the model that they will develop is essentially a subscription model, so that you pay 150 quid to subscribe to the Times, and then you can access the time, Times either as a newspaper or on your Kindle or online or on your mobile. Um, but you'll be a Times subscriber, and then they'll be able to market to you as a Times subscriber and, and get all sorts of spin-offs. I think that's the long-term model. Uh, so I don't, I, I mean, it's not for me to say as a, as a politician, but I think actually probably everyone will end up doing something similar to what Rupert Murdoch's doing, which is trying to find a way to um, prevent people accessing content free of charge. But when it comes to broadcasting standards, um, I think we have to understand and go into this with our eyes open that we, we cannot possibly stop the Guardian or the Times or the Sun or the Telegraph wanting to set up their own TV station. Um, we will have broadband TV in our living rooms in the next couple of years as soon as Canvas uh, is launched. And uh, then this will be just part of, of the fabric and we won't be able to regulate Sun TV in the same way that we regulate ITV. Um, it just won't be possible, and I don't think we would want to do that, because if we try and do that, what we'll actually do is put our national newspapers out of business. And as much as, you know, there are times when all politicians get frustrated, I actually think our newspapers are something that add massively to the um, variety and plurality in our democracy. And I think we need to make sure that we are light touch enough to allow them to evolve to new models so that they can survive as well. Lots of hands. Um, gentleman there, and then the one in the blue shirt. Thank you. Uh, Gerald Millwood Oliver, no affiliation. Uh, it's interesting, we, we started by talking about the universal service obligation, we've talked about net neutrality, um, we've talked about the, um, uh, the internet community. And it does strike me that uh, uh, we are hearing this evening the extent to which the corporate sector and government is continuing to control access and contr to uh, gain control over the whole medium. Uh, one of the questions I would ask about universal service obligation is uh, how do you avoid cherry picking? It's all very well to say satellite and all sorts of other ways of uh, accessing, but uh, I, I live in a rural area. Uh, I know that most, uh, the evidence I see is that most policies tend towards urban or metropolitan uh, consumers and uh, I can easily see a situation where uh, if you open the market completely and don't have a universal service obligation 
that uh, the, uh, uh, the companies are going to want to do the cities and avoid the uh, country, the rural areas, and the rural areas, if they want to gain access, will have to pay more. And at a time dealing with climate change, when we're trying to make sustainable communities across the country, uh, I can see all sorts of problems coming up there. So I'd, I'd value your, your, your thoughts on that. Thank you. Can you pass the microphone back to the man behind you? Thank you. David Bishop from a company called Kinetic, a technology company. What's the biggest change in media and communications that the panel expects to see over the next five years? That's a good one. Um, there was... Yeah, okay. Hi, uh, Adam Minns uh, from PACT. Um, I'd just like to pick up on something that Peter mentioned right at the beginning, which is uh, the declining investment in content, and particularly non-news content, which hasn't really been discussed this evening. Um, as Peter mentioned, the, from, the, from the public service broadcasters, there's been, a, this has been a significant decline in investments in UK content over the last five years, uh, to the point where a genre like children's has lost about 40% of total investment, even including the amount the BBC is putting in. Um, what would Jeremy like a Conservative government to do about that, um, particularly children's? We've only got about oh, three, four, five minutes left, so I'm going to take Jeremy's uh, yeah. responses and any f final comments from the panellists. Okay. Um, really good questions again. Um, let me just start with, with your point um, about universal service obligation. And, and let me ask you this. If um, ten years ago the government had said um, to all the people who are considering investing in broadband that uh, there will be a universal service obligation if you're going to be investing in broadband and you have to have um, a two meg minimum to every household, for example. If they'd said that 10 years ago, what impact do you think that would have had on the rate of investment in the current generation of broadband rollout? I think it would have inhibited it because people have said, why should I invest in this market if I've got all these restrictions um, limiting me, making it much more costly me to make the investments that I want to make. So I think there is a time when you can have a universal service obligation, and that is when you have got the majority of the population connected and people can see the economic returns from those connections, you then start to say, right, now we've got to look at where the gaps are and make sure that we fill those gaps. But if you're talking about next generation access and you started to say that um, anyone who wants to invest in next generation access in this country uh, will have to do a minimum of uh, a 20 meg connection to every household in the area they're covering. And I think the risk you have is that you would frighten people off making that investment in the first place. Um, the biggest change in the broadcasting market, uh, sorry, in the media market over the next five years, I think. Possibly, I'd say two, I think we are going to see the chaos of the internet in our living rooms as we have uh, broadband TV in our living rooms, uh, something that we can see as easily as terrestrial TV at the moment on our remote controls. I think that will be a huge change, um, not having to look at YouTube in your study or on your laptop, but actually seeing it in your living room, in your TV. I think that's going to be a, a big change. I think in terms of business services, um, I think it's very possible that we will see video calling as becoming the absolute norm. If you phone someone from sitting behind your desk, their face, and they're sitting behind their desk, 
their face will pop up on the screen without you having to do anything. I think that could be a big change that people may not welcome. Um, but, but I think it might be... Depends what you're doing at your desk. <laughs> it might be something that happens. Um, Adam's point about investment in content, I, I agree with him. And actually, I think Peter's made this point very well about the decline in investment in content. Um, it is something that I'm very concerned about. Um, and I want to talk to PACT and to the Indies and to the broadcasters about why it is that that investment has been declining. Um, but, um, you know, overall, I think that we, again, have regulations that make it very, very difficult for our major broadcasters to actually make any money. And in the end, that is the thing that drives investment in content. And I'm very keen, you know, if you talk about the one really important commitment from um, in public service broadcasting, and I think investment in UK-made content is something that would be pretty near to the top of my list. Thank you. Uh, very quickly on that subject, I, I think that uh, the remaining real public service broadcasters, Channel 4 and BBC, could put another 100 million into content now if they changed their priorities and um, did, made some of the economies to their organization and reorganization that they're planning anyway. It's quite clear that they can put more money into content. They need to be persuaded to do so. And we should be asking them to do so because at the end of the day, it's programs that we want from them. That's what we want. That's the basic thing. Uh, the biggest change, uh, and I think really Jeremy's mentioned this twice, once in the changing relationship of politics and electors to politicians. It's a conversation. If anything, one that they dominate rather than the politicians now. You talked about companies having their products designed for them by their customers. Um, and I was talking to the UK marketing director of Nokia this morning, who was pointing, he just said, well, we've lost control. We've completely lost control. And the example he gave was if you search Aston Martin, the second site that comes up is a man who says, why I hate Aston Martins, because he's spent 90k on, a, on an Aston Martin, it never bloody worked, and it's been a pain in the arse, and he obviously understands search optimization as well, because he's got himself up second. Now that is an example of how individuals can fight back, and how the, it, it is all about interactivity, and that, at the end of the push world, and the beginning of the push-pull, push-me-pull-you even world, is utterly dramatic. And for those of us, I'm in my 50s, who, who mentally are not really attuned to that. I can talk about it, I can talk the talk, but I don't yet walk the walk, to be honest. It's profound. It'll be profound for politicians, for companies, for everybody. Utterly profound. Well, just quickly, I mean, the, the, the internet is a platform for disgruntled Aston Martin owners. That's, that's <laughs> inspiring, isn't it? My heart bleeds. Um, not, not a client of yours. Not a client of yours. And I, I, I hope not, because I've probably lost them there and there. Um, I think I think the, the question you said, you know, what's the biggest change in the last next uh, five years has given us a fantastic subject for um, all over a glass of wine in a few minutes. But I'd say actually, in relation to that, I think at the moment um, there's still clearly in most people's minds a distinction between gaming and programmes and entertainment. And actually, I take your point, Robin, about people's training and ability to manipulate the technology that they're using. But I think we will rapidly, rapidly see that that divergence come together and actually you will see more and more people using technology to create programming that, that they are determining in a much much closer way. Now how they'll get the inspiration for that and where they'll want to look for that, I think those are still up for, for grabs but I think the technology will be there and that will be one of the biggest changes. Thank you. Well it seems to me we have a couple of certainties. The media ecology is changing. We are still talking often about 
traditional media, we talk about the press, broadcasting, and the internet, that funny thing that's catching us off guard. And the third thing that I really hope is true is that even though we're very uncertain how to do policy and regulation in this changing environment, we get at least enough of it right so that the kinds of uh, value and potential that can come out of this whole creative industry um, environment is something that serves all of us and all of you and everyone who's not here very, very well indeed. And I'd like to stop there and thank Jeremy ever so much. And Peter and Sasha, thank you very much. And thank you to the audience for coming. Yeah, indeed.